I know I'm starting early, but that's all right. Just a couple points I want to make um, before we really get into stuff tonight. Point number one. Did you know that Harrison Ford is 80 years old? 80. Um, and and that, that just stunned me. Not just because he's going to go be Indiana Jones when Indiana Jones, the character, is 70, which is still wild to me. But it, it, it really makes me think, like, the, the characters and the stories I praised and valued as a kid are they're getting older the, the properties are getting older the people are getting older and it made me very uh, aware that um for my generation these are the people and they will eventually pass on i don't know the heroes of even even my brother who's who's you know less than a decade older than me i i don't i don't know who his generation of heroes and idols are that's and certainly anything past that i don't know i'm just i'm just thinking about that today other thing i'm thinking about today there i got a message in i got an email from a, a viewer of this stream in this recording who was saying a variety of hateful things and a variety of, of not great things and i'm not i'm not calling this person out because they're not worth calling out uh, they're wrong and their opinions are shitty. But uh, I just want you to know that if you're out there and you feel like you don't have a place to belong or you don't know yet entirely who you are or you feel like it's always in flux or you feel like as a member of a marginalized community you don't fit anywhere, you fit here. You're always welcome here. It It never is a problem to accommodate or facilitate or hold space. It's never a problem at all. And absolutely, positively, everybody's welcome. And that doesn't mean everybody gets to be a dick and everybody gets to just, you know, be as loud and as aggressive as possible. It just means instead that everybody's welcome and we do our best to let people be welcome. So there's that. Next point, um, a little bit of capitalism here. If, uh, if Hershey or um, Ghirardelli or, oh, I don't know, um, any candy supplier, who makes Jolly Ranchers, uh, is out there, um, and whether that's my podcast audience or the streaming audience, um, hey, I would love to be sponsored by candy because it's pretty hard to get sponsored by hoodies and bathrobes. I don't know if it's easier to get sponsored by candy. I was nice at one point. I was sponsored by Sprecher, the soda people. But you know what I'm really in the mood for right now? Uh, a crunch bar or even a crackle or a hundred grand. Remember the hundred grand candy bar? That is that is just, I'm just hungry, okay? I'm, I'm just plain hungry. But let's go, let's go to work. Let's see what we can get up to tonight. There's some wonderful questions coming. There's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And, uh, oh, Small note, there's no camera tonight. Um, the outlet that my lights normally plug into has has gone kaput. And um, in order for me to replace it, I got to like move everything away from the wall. And honestly, there wasn't enough time to, uh, to make the replacement. It'll get done and we'll be back in place next week. And I see you saying in chat that I should get sponsored by Raid Shadow Legends. Um, I have to tell you that they've offered on a number of occasions to sponsor me for the 
uh, double digits of dollars, which tells me an awful lot about who they're willing to sponsor and to what the degree they're willing to sponsor things. But let me tell you, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, but the amount of demands they make in order to have this sponsorship is, um, it's extensive. Like I would have to redo my entire layout to accommodate them. I would have to stop and do a promo X number of minutes in multiple promos, given the number of uh, things I, or how long I record. And um, I don't know if they know who I am. Like I'm not, I'm not here playing a game. I, it wouldn't even occur to me. Like I, I'm on a Mac the number of games I can play off this Mac are, are pretty low, and I'm certainly not about to, you know, walk into the other room and hook up my my PlayStation. Like, I'm happy on the PlayStation as it is. Please don't make me have to commoditize the few fun things I have. But, no, I'm not yet sponsored by Raid Shadow Legends, where apparently you can do stuff. So, um, hello, everybody. It's nice to be here. Let's, uh, let's get started. It's going to be... I think it's going to be a really interesting night, if only because without a camera, I will be uh, less anxious about giving some deep answers to things. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm excited for this. I'm always relieved, frankly, when there's no camera. Let's go to work. All right. Just remember what I've taught you. So here we are, and I forgot to turn off my camera thing. So give me one second while I click a link and poof, bang, we're done. So let me center this over here like it's magic. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. It's wonderful to see you. If this is the first time, by the way, you've ever heard me, because I know there's a couple people uh, and you're new. It is. Why is that still playing? Thank you. Um, it's wonderful to have you here. I do hope you consider hanging around. My name is John. It is my job to help you write better. Hi. Normally, uh, I'm over on the, the left side of your screen in a little bubble, but um, I don't have lights, so the camera is just going to like pick up this strange, vague, like true crime silhouette of me, and, and that's not really going to make a great impression. So I thought instead, rather than fuss with a camera in the dark, I thought we could just hang out and talk like the old days. So next week, back to a camera. If you're wondering what I look like, go later watch more videos because I'm in them. But for now, hi, just you, me, and the dulcet tones of my voice. And I'm, I got to tell you, I'm in a good, a, a pretty good mood. It was really nice, warm, and sunny here. And I hope wherever you are, it was also a pleasant day for you as well. Shall we do the regular intro? Guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, planners, plotters, dancers, enthusiasts, shakers, Quakers, Mennonites, 
anybody who's ever, you know, rode across the desert on a horse with no name, anybody who's ever thought to themselves, God, there's somebody I'd like to whoop their ass. Anybody who's ever enjoyed a good chicken sandwich, people who know the appropriate amount of barbecue sauce to put on barbecued foods, um, pirates, mercenaries, the good kind, not the bad kind. Uh, chocolate enthusiasts, people who enjoy a good sale on candy, the lonely, the dispossessed, the average, the mediocre, the extraordinary, the people who aren't sure who they are, but they're trying all the same, everybody who's ever tried their absolute best, anybody who's ever wondered if they're ever going to get done the things they swear they keep starting, anybody who's ever been afraid, and most importantly, the comrades. Welcome to the Writer's Chat for February the 15th. It was suggested... Did I put the date somewhere on the opening screen? That's not a bad idea. I'm going to start doing that for the next chat, I think. Sounds like a good plan. Let's do it. Um, this is the writer's chat. Of course, if, if you're new, here's what this is. I'm going to answer questions. Uh, I've got 13 questions collected from all corners of social media, uh, Twitter. A couple. I think I have two from Instagram, some from Discord. And uh, a lot of them emailed into the website, johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com. And uh, as well as the questions of those people in chat, both on YouTube and Twitch. Say hi, YouTube. Say hi, Twitch. It's good to see you. And um, whatever other questions we can think of at the time. Just a note. Uh, I'm supposed to say this just because this is not like your mom's chat. I, I don't know. That's a thing I was told to say by somebody who wanted me to say something. Basically, uh, I'm I'm going to tell you the good and the bad of things. I'm not really interested in partially doing it or giving you just the same retread advice. I'm, I'm, I have no interest in doing that whatsoever. I've been doing this job, not so much the streaming, but the helping people write better for 22 years, more than 22 years, more than half my life. And uh, it is my absolute joy and pleasure to do so. So um, I'm not going to sugarcoat things. I want to make things as accessible to you as possible. I want you to succeed. I believe in you. You matter to me. And I want to see you. I want your book on my shelf there. And I'm going to help you do everything in my power to help make that happen. With that all said, let's, uh, let's jump onto that first question, shall we? Question number one. Look how seamless it is without me having to deal with a camera. Question number one. Is it wrong to be confused and frustrated by the publishing industry? And the answer very simply is no. It is not wrong and you are not bad and you are not broken or mistaken or in, in some kind of, you know, minority position where everybody else gets it and you don't. It is absolutely positively okay to be completely and entirely 1000 million percent confused and frustrated by the publishing industry. And I'm talking both traditional and self-publishing at this point. I'm talking traditional in terms of the hurry up and wait of submission windows and hearing back and querying and rejections and toggling and balancing all those things, along with hearing back feedback from an editor or a publisher or cover design. But I'm also talking self-publishing about the people, you know, trying to get, you know, build together a team of people to help you get this book off the ground, the long stretches of not knowing if the marketing is clicking, the frustration just in marketing, 
And even before we even get to publishing, just the act of writing itself and its constant retread of mediocre at best writing advice from people who swear they've been successful and people who are raking in gobs of money, preying on those people who need legitimate help but are convinced that the only way to get help is to spend thousands of dollars on shitty people who fucking lie to you all the time. I'm not interested in doing any of that. I'm interested in helping you without any of that pretense and without nearly as many hoops to jump through. Maybe a hoop in the form of like, be kind and good to other people. But beyond that, I, I'm not here to confuse and frustrate. I'm here to simplify. I'm here to organize. I'm here to assist and empower. And I think that's the better way to go. But if you're out there looking at publishing, looking at finishing, looking at querying, look at selling your book yourself, thinking about Amazon and keywords and hashtags and Kindle Unlimited and God knows whatever else. And it's just seeming like it's so much and there's too much. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's designed to be confusing and it's designed to be frustrating because that's one of the ways the gatekeepers gatekeep. They don't necessarily want you to succeed easily and smoothly because they don't want to pay out. They don't want you to do well. They want you to do well enough to keep going, but not well enough to get complacent and quit. It's a rigged game. And I'm hoping to show you how the dice are filed off. But it's not wrong to be confused and frustrated by it. It's capitalism. We're all screwed by it. Let's go get that next question. Question number two. How do you write a protagonist whose mistakes cause harm without the audience hating them for it? All right, look, we're going to talk a little bit of character theory right now. But there's an assumption baked into this question that we have to address first, and I'm not getting away from it without answering it. There is an assumption that your protagonist both has to be good and perfect, and that if they make a mistake, if they do less than perfect, less than flawless, the audience, for whatever reason, will immediately hate them, not dislike them, not be confused, not be frustrated, not be shocked. We're going straight for the hate. And that's just not true. Neither of those things are true. If your protagonist does things in the story and the, those things the character accomplishes, whatever they might be, cause harm somewhere in the story to other characters, to themselves, to the environment around them, to things and factors and characters and people and places we don't yet know because it's setting up something for down the road, well, that's okay. Like, that's, that's really positively and truly okay. It's not the end of the world if your protagonist isn't mega super all the time perfect and special. It's, it's really okay. The audience is not going to immediately hate them because of a mistake. Now, don't confuse hate. Let's make sure we define our internet savviest term. We're not talking like hate is a synonym for dislike. Because it's okay if the audience dislikes an action or a decision a character makes. That's fine. They're not going to throw the book across the room. They're going to stay invested and see what happens. They're not, I mean, yeah, sure, there's some portion of the population who at the first sign of this book is going different than how I expect, I'm going to yeet this book into the sun. But you can't say that's true of every single reader, nor should you think that. They're not, but I'm not talking about like, oh, I, I, if I were this character, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done this thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this idea that, oh my God, the character stepped some toe out of line or had to do something because the story led them there. The character had to do something and now I hate them. 
No. Like, I get it. It's an anxiety. It's a worry. It's a concern. And maybe you've had some really shitty feedback indicate to you that a reader somewhere hates this, but it's not, you know, that's really not functionally good feedback anyway. But you write this protagonist by writing the protagonist doing their best, not the same as perfect, doing their best relative to what the character knows at the time they have to make the decision where the decision they make is a mistake that causes harm. Like, Making the mistake and doing the bad thing is part of the story, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be asking the question. But if if that's where they're at in the story, you don't need to necessarily overspend time and space justifying why they had to do it. You can if you want. It's not a requirement. It's up to you and how you want to write things. But by and large, you just write the protagonist using the knowledge they have at the time. So if they make their mistake on page two, they're only acting on the information from page one and two. If they make the mistake deeper in the book, it's everything they've got up to that point. And maybe the mistake is part of the plot. Maybe the mistake is part of their character arc. Maybe their mistake is the setup as to why this is the first book in a series. Who knows? It could be a lot of things. But don't assume that just because your character isn't super magic special perfect, that the audience is only going to be interested if they're flawless. Because they're not. The audience, the reader, comes to the book because they're looking for a cinematic experience they can put in their brain. And they're looking for an experience where they can relate to, in at least one way, this character and this story. Find those relationships. Find how you're building a bridge to your reader. Whether it's, I just make this character makes them laugh, or this character um, does cool shit and it just looks cool, or whether this character has a, a deeply personal thing that maybe a reader has experienced in their life as well, or something else in some other dimension I can't think of off the top of my head. But build those bridges between your character and the reader, and when your character really, you know, steps in it and messes up, they're not going to hate them. They're going to follow along and sympathize and feel bad and feel good and feel whatever it is you're trying to get them to feel. Don't overthink the nature of your character in trying to tell your story. It's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. On we go to question three. Question three, related to the last question. How do you write the mistakes and the faults and the problems that characters have? Like traits and consequences. I forgot a parenthesis. Oh, no. Uh, like traits or consequences without the reader disconnecting from the story. Again, we've got that same sort of uh, impression underlying everything that your character has to be perfect and their flaws need to be either minimal or simple. But just as a cautionary note, the simpler your flaw is as a character, the more the reader is going to wonder why they haven't resolved it. And if you just say, well, I have this flaw, I have flaw X, whatever it is, and you beat the drum on flaw X over and over and over again without really detailing the ramifications like... Um, uh, let, me, let me think of one. I miss my second grade teacher. Let's just say that's the flaw. And over and over and over, your character is always thinking and saying something in the ballpark of, I miss my second grade teacher without ever like showing how the character reacts and interacts to the rest of the world. Then you're not really developing the mistake, fault, and problem. Because if you're going to put something in there, if you're going to create this situation for the character, you have to develop it. You got to do something with it. It's not enough just to say they missed their second grade teacher. Oh, boo hoo. It's I missed my second grade teacher. And this is the profound effect this has had on my life. 
now that I sit here and think about it, I'm not sure I remember my second grade teacher. I remember my first grade teacher. I remember my third grade teacher. But that's beside the point. The, the fact is that the reader's disconnection from the story is not because the mistake or fault or problem exists. The reader disconnects from the story when the story, for all its mistakes and successes and bits and pieces, when the story ceases to be relatable, ceases to be organized, ceases to be engaging, that's where the reader checks out. It's not just because, oh my God, the, there's a problem on page 10. That's, an, that's a thing a reader can invest in. I wonder how they're going to solve this problem. I wonder they're, how they're going to deal with these things. That's what we want. We want the messiness. We want that story. We want to see these characters go through adversity, over, you know, develop, change, risk, gain, and overcome and resolve things. We want to see that. That's what we're here for. We're not just here to watch a, a video game cutscene of a character like max doing max damage all the time and one-shotting all the bosses. Like that's that's engaging once. You know, like to make a video game analogy, it's really cool that there are all these different videos on YouTube that talk about how you can do max damage and one shot everything. But after a while, like, what's the point? We're not speed running. We're not trying to get through this book as fast as possible. We're not trying to just hurry along because it sucks. So who cares about the numbers? We're trying to do this in a way where it's, it's an experience and it stays with you. And you say to yourself, God, this book is so good. And it's good not because they're trying to like breeze over or gloss over things, but you're crafting mistakes and faults and problems that not only exist in the world, but you show the ramifications, you show their impact, you show the the, the fingerprints of it. Like, I, you know, character has flaw X, they miss their second grade teacher. So what does that missing do for the rest of their life? Are they unable to commit to their long-term partner? Are they emotionally bottlenecked? Are they having rage issues? Are they lonely? Are they out? Out trolling bars looking for you know women who vaguely look like their second grade teacher are they you know fighting crime wearing like a mask that says second grade on it like what are they doing because of this mistake fault or problem that's what keeps the reader connected not disconnected if you want to disconnect them you just say well I miss my second grade teacher and then never bring it up again you write it and you develop it you do something with it. You don't just say they have it. It's like, oh, I have 10 fingers. Okay, but if my story has nothing to do with my ne my necessity for 10 fingers or a challenge to, you know, it'd be great if I had 12. If the fingers don't factor into anything, it's a waste of an opportunity. It's a waste of a situation. Make it matter. Also, reduce the number of them. If they matter, six things mattering becomes a lot to juggle. Why not three? Why not two? One can be a little bit too thin, sure, but you don't need 15 to demonstrate that, oh, I'm such a good writer. It's, you don't want to clutter. You don't want to trip over everything. Why not less than five? Why not less than six? Pick a number greater than one and less than, I don't know, 12 and develop accordingly. It doesn't always have to be this big mega laundry list of things because that, again, our goal is relatability, not just the simple solution of a problem. It's not just let's do this high damage or do this cool stuff. That's, that's great in the short term for a simpler story. But by and large, um, the older your audience, the older you're aiming, they're looking for that complexity. They're looking for that relatability. And mistakes and faults and problems like traits and consequences, those are things your reader has. 
So they're looking to connect via those traits, consequences, mistakes, faults, and problems, not disconnect. So pick a few, make them matter to the character in ways that they would matter to the reader. And the reader will stay right there engaged. Great question. Oh my God, I changed the graphic. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? Any question about anything? Would you like the T update before we answer Troy's question? Troy, ask your question. I'm going to give the T update while you're asking. Uh, tonight's T is Indian black. And it is, it is like jet fuel. I, I adore this tea. It was a gift from my next door neighbor who had extra. Uh, she also brought me some candy, not much, but a few pieces, which I will be having after this stream to celebrate, you know, having a really nice day. But she also brought me some tea and it is, oh, it is great. Um, I'm really digging it. It's fantastic. Cold. It's delightful. All right. Here comes Troy's question. I'm trying to add more vivid imagery and figurative language into my writing. That's great, Troy. Good job. How do I recognize when I've crossed the line into purple prose? It's a fear I have. First of all, good job citing a fear. Always proud of people when they do that. Second of all, purple prose is the very extreme end of the pool for swimming in descriptive, vivid language. It's like overdone it's it's the big like how many adjectives am i going to have on this thing four or more or i'm going to pick really arcane complicated language just because i'm willing to bet without seeing a specific example you're probably not writing very purple prose you're probably writing a normal amount of prose and it just feels like a lot because you're trying to add more to it and get better with it uh, purple prose would be, I'm going to chain together multiple adjectives, multiple adverbs, multiple descriptors to a single object and really lay it on very thick and overdo it and really show you like, oh, I'm going to throw some semicolons in here. Look at my M dash is all up in this piece and, and try to really like deluge the reader in not necessarily always sentence complexity, but deluge the reader in a ton of detail without really assigning them any priority. It's, it's like saying, ah, here is, you know, here is a pen. It is, you know, it clicks and it erases and it's plastic and it has a little metal tip and it's got a part where you can, you know, stick it in your pocket and it has this cap and it does this and it's this long and it's this and it's wonderful and majestic and resplendent and it's the greatest pen that ever penned and it's mightier than the sword and it's, it's, it's all these things. And I'm just rattling them off. And my, my descriptions get larger and more grotesque as I go. Instead of just saying it's a, it's, a, it's a black pen and it's on the desk. When I lay it on extra thick, that's where it gets into purple prose. Chances are, Troy, you're not there. Just because you're adding more vivid imagery and figurative language doesn't immediately take it to purple. You got to go like way past where you probably are. I know it might feel like that because it's new, but if you're just adding a few more details here and there, you're probably fine. Don't overthink it. Just remember that every sentence is a camera and that if somebody's reading a sentence, whatever it is, what is it you want them to picture in their head? Do that 
describe it as clearly as you can. And I say clearly not in a sense of like do it in the fewest number of words. I mean, just be accurate with the vision in your head and you're going to be just fine. Good luck with your fear. It's going to work out, really. It feels awkward the first couple times and then you get more comfortable with it and then it stops really being a thing. Just keep going. You're doing great. Are there any other questions? Else we will march on. All right, on we go. Question number four. Oh, question number four. Is a freelance editor more important than a beta reader? You're welcome, Troy. Is a freelance editor more important than a beta reader? Okay. Let's talk. Let's let's hit that elephant in this room. I used to be, for a very long time, a freelance editor, not a coach. When I made the jump to include coaching and I was an editor and a coach, um, I would tell you in a heartbeat I was more important than a beta reader because I, I, I drove this job primarily on the size of my ego and my skill. And I, I had a huge chip and I saw everybody else as competition. And I didn't really care about the, the concept or the term or the, it was more for me about the recognition and the identity. I'm better than your beta reader. Not the fact that I'm an editor is, is important. It was just John's better than your beta reader. And that in the long term is a terrible strategy. When I transitioned and shifted into being a coach who for his clients as part of coaching edits, which is what I do now, I'm not a beta reader. I'm more than a beta reader, but I don't mean to make the beta readers role smaller. It's just that I, I do more than a beta reader does. I'm not necessarily more important anymore. Both are important, but I do think that if we're just talking freelance editor, the distinction between editor and beta reader definitely needs to be clearer because a lot of people tend to use their beta readers as editors. And I don't know if you know this, um, that's sort of like gathering your six friends who come and hang out at the house and, you know, cook out on Sunday and having them like remodel your bathroom. Sure. They might mostly be okay at it. Some of them might even be general contractors and quite skilled at it. But by and large, you might be getting your neighbor from up the street who still thinks that crypto is a great idea. And you're going to hand them a hammer and say, here, get in my house and do things. A freelance editor is more important than a beta reader when it comes time to have the thing, the manuscript, edited. But the beta reader will be more important than the editor when it's time to get that very necessary feedback in terms of how the reader engages with the story. They are not more important than each other. They are equally important, but at different stages in the process. And too many people muddle them all together. Ah, oh, my beta reader will do my editing. Well, you're lazy and cheap and a coward. You know, you're, you're just doing a shitty job on purpose because you're afraid of actually like putting your money where your mouth is and shelling out for your work and really having somebody stand up and help you be better at it. You're going to farm it out to people who you don't necessarily have to pay, who will give you a subjective opinion 
based on the fact of, that they like you to some degree. So you're going to get soft feedback, which is going to lead to a weaker product, which is going to ultimately burn you out in terms of response. Because when your reader, when the readership goes out into the world and sees your book, you're counting on the fact that you know your best friend Barbara's opinion is somehow going to make up for the fact that you don't know how to fucking use a semicolon. But that's up to you. That's your choice. A freelance editor is not more important than a beta reader. They're just two different positions. I'm going to tell you what is more important than both those things. A good organized story and a coach, a good coach, who knows how to help you get where you want to go, able to juggle multiple forms of editing, multiple forms of organization, multiple forms of story development, will outshine both of these things. I'm a better coach than I am an editor now, and I was a damn good editor, and I know this not because I'm just happier doing this, although that's significant. It's because an editor is still limited with the tools they can use. An editor can flag and tell you what's wrong. A beta reader can tell you that things don't feel quite right. It's a coach and maybe even a developmental editor who can get in there and go, okay, other people are saying this stuff doesn't feel right. Here's why. You need the why and then transition the why into a how. This doesn't feel this doesn't feel right. Here's why. And here's how you fix it so that it matches the thought in your head better. That's what's more important than the reader or editor here. But sadly, that wasn't the question. It's a great question. I was plenty contentious about it. It's a good one. Let's go do the next one. Question number five. Why do I dislike starting first chapters with geographical and contextual exposition? Let's stop there, and then we'll do the second half. Uh, the second half, by the way, is don't we have a responsibility to inform the reader where the story is happening? Okay, let's unpack that first part first. I don't like when a chapter starts with geographical and contextual exposition, which is a very fancy way of saying, here's the land, here's the weather, this is what season it is, this is what's going on. I refer to that as the traffic and weather report. I don't like starting first chapters with that. I don't really like starting many chapters with that because no matter what, eventually you have to make that shift into action or into character or into something more important than the fact that it's the fourth day of the month and it's two weeks before the spring festival. Like, you've, you've got to make that jump away from the big, broad, static description and get into something that the reader can picture and the reader can understand because you've given them some material to do the understanding with. If you just go, it's sunny. Okay. And? I Yes, I'm drawn to the next sentence, but I'm, I'm kind of ticked that we only stop there. It's sunny. Okay, so what? It's sunny and it's the fourth day of the season. Okay. I'm, I'm still waiting for the story to pick up here. Geographical and contextual exposition for whatever it is, however much you write, be it a sentence, a paragraph, a page, a chapter, whatever, is a lot of setup. And eventually you got to get past that setup and get us into something. Anything, a dialogue beat, an action beat, an emotional beat, an investigatory beat, something so that the reader has something to connect to. Because if you're just going to give them this these backdrop situations of the weather and the trees and the history and the continent and the land and the... 400 years of the kingdom. <sighs> Yawn, stretch. Eventually, it's going to wonder, well, what am I supposed to do with this information now that you're telling me? Get to that doing, and you have all the time and space in and around it to fill in the gaps with geographical and contextual exposition. Now, here's the second half of this question. 
don't we have a responsibility to inform the reader where the story is happening? Yes, you do. I think responsibility is a loaded word. I think it's a pretentious word looking to bait me into something. But yeah, your job is to inform the reader where the story is happening. How many words, how long is it going to take you to do that, though? Honestly, sincerely. I'm not trying to get you to do this in the shortest, fewest number of words possible. I'm not trying to like turn this into a Zen cone or a haiku or something. I'm just saying that, okay, once you tell me where the story is happening, don't you have to tell me what the story is? The responsibility is to do more than just inform them where it's happening. That's like the first thing. But the second, third, fourth, fifth, 20th, 75th, 85th things are just as important and just as material. And your responsibility lies more there than anywhere else. What is the story? I don't really need, do I need to care that it's sunny? If, if we're, the entire story is going to take place inside a castle? Or it's on a spaceship, so why do I care about what the weather on some planet is? Get me to the story. Develop the story. And all the contextual, geographical, cartological information is nice, but secondary. Don't get bogged down in setting up everything and then thinking that, well, I, I set that all up in the early chapters. It's a constant evolution, a constant progression of setups and payoffs, developments and moving onward over and over piece by piece. You're constantly going to be picking up, resetting the scene and moving things along. Things might persist. We're always in the forest. We're always in the dungeon. We're always on the spaceship. But even the level of persistence is variable because we're going to move from place to place and context will change how we interact with those spaces. It's one thing if we're just flying this spaceship and everything's cool and there's no asteroid field and no bad guys are attacking, but all of a sudden we're going to engage with our chair and our spaces and our lasers and all our pew pew bang bangs when, you know, the asteroid field happens and there's an attack and there's a big giant space hamster. Like, context matters and it matters more than geographical or contextual exposition. Don't get hung up on all the big elaborate setups. Use the setups to do something and set something up. That's why it's a setup. Excellent question. On we go. Question six, which I have to tell you is the question I've been most excited to answer all day. Question six. How can I tell the difference between good improvements or good revisions to the story and lateral changes that maybe aren't worth making? When do I know... Or when do I know if I'm making a good change? All right, let's, let's break these things down. Our goal here is always going to be to try and craft a story that most matches the picture in our head. It's the most clearest, the most clearest? That's some great language, Sean. It is the clearest and most eloquent broadcast of the movie in our head onto the page so that it can become the movie in your head. Good improvements. Good is a really subjective term, so let's try not to get hung up on good versus bad. But the improvements and revisions to the story that benefit the transmission, that benefit the clarity or benefit the vivid imagery and figurative language like Troy had mentioned, the things that make the story in some way more in alignment and congruence with the pictures in your head, we would term those as good improvements or good revisions. 
Lateral changes, the technical term is a lateral change. Lateral changes are the very subjective changes that you're basically changing just because you can. And the fundamental difference here is that an improvement or revision can affect the story in some way. It's the difference between saying, well, what if I take this chapter where the princess rides, you know, escapes into the night. And instead of escaping into the night, she escapes in the middle of broad daylight. And so there are more people who witness it and it's more dramatic. That's an improvement because it changes the nature and context of the story. A lateral change would be the princess is still going to escape, but now she's going to escape on a, a brown horse instead of an all white unicorn. The, the change there is somewhat superficial. A lateral change does not help create new context. It doesn't help give your story or you, the writer, more opportunity to get that broadcast clearer in your brain and therefore clearer on the page. It's just a thing you're changing because, uh, shit, I better just change something. It's, it's sort of like, you know, like find and replace a character's name. You go through the whole book and they're named Ted and then, you know, find and replace. Oh, I guess now they're named Steve. That's a lateral change. Unless there's something about the word Steve that really has great import to the story. Without it, it's fairly insignificant and it might as well be, you know, Bob for all it matters. The difference is whether or not the change you're making or the change you're proposing or the change you're planning substantially makes it match the picture in your head. That's always going to be your arbiter. That's always going to be the sort of the measuring stick. Now, if you're thinking about this and going, yeah, John, I'm just not sure what the picture in my head is first before I make these changes. Well, guess what I'm going to tell you? Before you make the change, figure out what the picture in your head is. Writing is the act of making decisions. That doesn't mean the decisions are permanently carved in some kind of indelible stone and they can never be changed again. But if you're changing things because you're, you're uncertain and unsure, well, I don't know if Steve's a better name than Ted. I don't know if the horse should be a brown horse or a unicorn or maybe she should fly out on like a flying horse. Maybe, maybe she should sneak through the sewers. You know, I don't, maybe there should be frog people in the sewers. Maybe, maybe it shouldn't be a princess. When you're just changing things because you're in that sort of desperate mode to grab things. Oh my God, what if somebody else would like this better? If I change this, maybe down the road somewhere, somebody would maybe give me one more star and maybe a review. They would maybe write. And you're hinging all these changes now on a very uncertain potential future. Chances are those things you want to do are lateral changes that are not going to impact the story in a super positive way. However, if we're talking about things that make your story more and more line up with, more, in, more together, more connected, more like the way you see it in your head... Those are the changes and revisions worth pursuing. Whether or not they're good, making air quotes, good comes down to A, how you write it, because you might just have a great clear picture in your head, but suck at getting it across, so you got to write it a couple times. That's normal. That's fine. But the difference between a good change and a lateral one is whether or not it matches what's in your head, which means job number one, figure out what the story is in your head. You can always change it later, I mean, right up until the day you decide to publish a thing or query the thing, and even then you still get to change stuff, right up until the point it gets into a publication, right up to the point where you, you submit it for print or, or proof or whatever, 
you can make all the changes you want. So it's you're not ever locked in permanently. Even the stuff you love, even those darlings you, you, you're unwilling or hesitant to trim or pair out, you can always change them, always, every time. That's how you tell the difference between a good improvement and a lateral change. What a great question. I'm going to go to the next. Are there more questions from chat? Anybody who's there? Any question? If you're new, and I know there's new people here, if you're new... Hi, feel free to ask whatever you want about anything. I had a good day. I had chicken nuggets. Thanks for asking. I'm just going to start throwing out answers to random things. Um, I did not play nearly enough games of chess. Um, I got a lot of work done, so that was nice. Had some good meetings, made some people laugh, worked out some story problems. It was a good day. It was a damn fine day, and I hope your day, wherever you are doing whatever you're doing, I hope your day was good as well. Questions? I just want to double check and make sure I do love making people laugh. If you've ever had, um, if you've ever had any kind of coaching session with me or like panic session where you're just trying to like figure stuff out, absolutely positively bar none. The best thing I will always try to do other than answer your questions. I'm going to try and make you laugh because I love, I love making people laugh. It, it feels good. I it just it changes the tone of everybody's day. Good stuff. Shall we move on? Are we good? All right. Off we go. Question 7. What's the relationship between voice and subject matter? And how are they each used? There should be an each in there. How are they each used to emphasize or de-emphasize story elements. Okay, let's define some terms first. Subject matter is the stuff you're writing about. It's the substance of story. It's the point you're making, whether we're trying to describe something, whether we're talking about a theme, whether we're putting words in a character's mouth, whether we're giving characters thoughts, it's the stuff we're writing. It's the underlying... Now, if we're taking this as the underlying theme and the thematic structure, and it's the, this is a story about found family, then if, if that's how we're interpreting subject matter as something critical and underneath the story architecture, the subtext, then subtext and voice, voice is how you're writing, the way you are choosing to employ words and punctuation in order to engage and maintain a connection with the reader, voice. If we're talking about voice and subtext, then we can use voice and subtext to, since one is what we're talking about and one is how we're talking, we can use our decisions, we can use our word choice, we can use our subtext as a lens and a filter to choose what to emphasize or what not to emphasize. If we're telling the story of found family or an underdog story, 
then we will pass some number of our story elements through the binary lens of, does this help make the underdog story better? Is this more about found family? Yes, no. And if it's a yes, we have the option to emphasize it and say a few more things about it. If it's a no, but we still need it in the story, we de-emphasize it. We mention it once and we move along. Or we mention it fewer times, because it isn't always automatically once. We mention it fewer times than if we were to promote it. If we're using subject matter just as the substance of our words, the language we're using and the stuff we're doing with it, then voice is the way we broadcast it. If I'm speaking to you now, I'm both using my audio voice, but I'm also using my narrative voice and my authorial decision-making voice because I'm choosing the words I'm, I'm communicating to you. And the subject matter is me answering this question. How I choose to accomplish the goal of my subject matter depends on my voice. And I use my voice both as a audio medium tool, but also in terms of my decision-making to pick and choose the things I want to say in order to make my point clearly. Normally, the relationship between voice and subject matter or voice and subtext is one facilitates the other. Because here's your theme or here's your subtext, your voice is going to put a spotlight to it. Make it clear, make its absence clear, promote a thing as positive, promote a thing as negative, make something known, make something unknown. Talk about how bad the bad guy is because they kicked a puppy. Talk about how good grandma is because she made you brownies. Talk about the the reason why this, this status quo has to change. Talk about why the hero is the one to change it. Those two tools work together very, very nicely. And story should not just be a chain of sentences that describe objects. Here is a couch. Here is a chair. Here is a room in this house. Here is a house. It's on a street. It's on a block. It's in a city. It's in a state. It's in a country. It's on a continent, etc., etc., etc. It shouldn't just be a presentation of statements of fact. Stories should look to connect to a reader and look to evoke feeling from them based on the context you create and the movie you put in their head. Voice and subtext are the tools you use to do that evocation, to draw, to, to adduce from them this material. Voice and subtext are how you get it. If I want you to really care about the, the underdog sports team in my story, I'm going to spend time developing what they feel like as an underdog through my decision-making lens of me feeling like an underdog because I think the way I'm talking about being an underdog is something you, on your end of this transaction, can relate to. But in order to tell the kind of underdog story I want, I'm picking and choosing. I'm saying I'm going to talk about it in this dimension, to this degree. I'm not going to necessarily... like if I, We'll use an example. If I'm going to talk about the Mighty Ducks as an underdog story, I'm going to talk about them being not necessarily bad kids, but I'm going to talk about them being undisciplined, disorganized, a little chaotic. And then I'm going to talk about them, you know, rallying and getting better and building up what they need to do and, and training. I'm going to emphasize those things because that better assists the development of my narrative. You can be an underdog, but if you're, if you're pure of heart and earnest and invested, you can, you can accomplish great things. You have to believe in yourself. What I'm going to de-emphasize is the inherent middle-class privilege 
of the Mighty Ducks. They all have enough money and means to own gear, to regularly skate, to have the luxury of being able to play hockey in addition to being kids, in addition to going to school, in addition to being whatever else they're being. And this is especially true in the later movies where they're traveling the nation and then traveling the world and attending private school for some reason. Like, there's an enormous amount of unspoken of privilege there. There's an also an unspoken amount of tokenism and, and some patriarchy in there too. But um, I'm de-emphasizing those elements because they don't fit the narrative I've selected. They're still in the story. I'm not ignoring them. I'm not, you know, completely awful. But I'm choosing to sort of, in some ways, distract you from them. And in some ways, just make them present but not let you not give you enough time and space to focus on them. That's a tricky line for a lot of things. That's a, that's a hard line and it takes some skill and a lot of people especially early on in their writing career fumble it. That's not a you're not you're not wrong or bad if you fumble it. It's hard to do. You'll get better at it over time. But the downside of this, the danger of this I want to call your attention to is that when I talk about this, I'm putting it in your head. And a lot of people, upon hearing this, immediately start thinking that they have to not do this, that they, they can't possibly make a mistake. They can't possibly de-emphasize a thing. So they've got to cover all these bases. So they're forever trying to, either through research or story complication or just cluttering up the story with some bullshit, always trying to hedge their bets in terms of what a reader could ask about or what somebody could question or what somebody would say. Or, you know, it can't just be a story moving in one direction, one way. I've got to have these other 10 things covered just in case. And and you don't. You really and truly don't don't. What you need to do is tell the best story you can your way. And if that means when we're telling the Mighty Duck story, we don't really stop and talk about like, not necessarily the casual sexism, but why it was never pushed or challenged more. Or why they had most regard for most hockey rules, but all of a sudden when convenient, they sure didn't. Was that because it was a Disney movie? Was that because it was just a comedy? Was that because maybe we shouldn't worry so fucking much? There are going to be times where no matter what you're writing, you're going to have to de-emphasize things. And your voice and your subtext and your description and your vivid imagery and your punctuation and a million other factors are going to come into play there. And it's okay. It's okay if in your romance novel... You just have the people fall in love and they don't solve world peace. Or, you know, in your fantasy novel, if it's just about this small group of heroes who go on a quest together and then they fight the bad thing and then they win, but you never get around to explaining, like, why 300 years prior some character did a thing or why you never explain why this stone is this color or something. You can't possibly paralyze your story trying to handle and address all the things because otherwise you'll never finish. It's okay to emphasize and de-emphasize through voice, through subtext, through description, through decision-making in order to get the story out of your head and onto the page. Totally fine. Amazing question. On to the next. Question eight. What's the worst decision an unpublished author can make? 
I struggled with this one. I got to tell you, I really struggled with this because I had a very quick answer. I had a very simple, straightforward, shoot-from-the-hip answer. The worst decision an unpublished author can make is to never publish. But then I thought about it. See, because it's an easy answer. It's easy to say the worst decision somebody unpublished can make is to never publish. But that assumes that everybody who writes wants to publish. And that assumes that everybody who wants to write should be published because there are plenty of people writing plenty of things that in their current iteration, at their current level of skill, in their current direction, with all the stuff they know, no matter how willing or unwilling they are to hear feedback, they're disinterested in doing anything other than getting recognition for being creative. And when receiving feedback or pushback or critique or criticism or feedback or help, it shuts them down. And none of my snap answer addresses any of that. Because there are people in this world who want to write but never publish. They just want to write because it makes them happy, which is beautiful, and they should be able to do that, absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a saying in gaming that not every game needs to be an actual play thing monetized. Sometimes you're just playing with your friends, and sometimes we're just telling stories. I think the worst decision an unpublished author can make is very similar to the worst decision a published author can make, which is to quit and never come back. Because you can fix everything. You know, if, if you write a bad chapter, you can redraft a chapter. If you have a, a weak plot, you can work on a plot development. If you have a lack of imagery or development like that, we can practice that. If you have too many things in your story, you can pare it down. And if you walk away for whatever period of time, you can always come back. And if your first book is done but it doesn't sell well, okay, you have the opportunity, the option to try again if you want. But if you quit and never come back, if you're unpublished and you say to yourself, God, I really want to be published. Man, I would love to be published. It's important to me. I want this book out there. Not because, you know, I want to, not even for the, like the, the finance fantasy of it, right? Like I want to sell enough books to pay my bills. I want to move out of my house. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to, great. All those fantasies are delightful fantasies. It's not even about the money. It's not even about the, the sense and feeling of satisfaction that, oh my God, I have to hold a physical book in my hands, even though physical books are destroying the planet. I have to do that in order for it to be legit. Not even that important. It's that you said this thing was important to you. You changed your habits. You made a schedule. You got up at five fuck o'clock in the morning. You wrote on your weekends. You maybe squeezed in, in like 10 minutes here and five minutes there for a long time. You daydreamed about this book. You figured out what you were going to write. You listened to people. You took advice. You asked questions. You did loads of stuff. Why on earth... Would you stop? Are you scared? It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be burnt out. Those are all super valuable things. They happen. Capitalism is a monster. This world is terrible. Of course, it's going to chew you up and spit you out. And you can grieve it and be disappointed and be hurt. Absolutely. And I'm sorry that you're going through that. But why would you quit? 
You said this thing was important to you. You were using this book as a reprieve, as an oasis, as, as, a, as a shelter from the storm of, that is the rest of your life. Why would you walk away from the shelter? You could always ask for help. You could always say, hey, I got a question. What do I do with this? Hey, how do I make this work? How do I get better at this? I'm scared. Help me. We have such fear around this idea that we're going to expose something emotional and expose something vulnerable while we're in the middle of making art, which is itself vulnerable and emotional. But we're afraid that we're going to say something. I need help with this. I don't know how to do this. I want to get better at this. I'm scared. I'm worried. I'm bothered. I'm frustrated. I'm pissed off, whatever. We're afraid that we're going to put that idea out and someone's going to identify us by it. And then instead of getting receiving something that will calm us or soothe us or help us or aid us or comfort us or just be good to us, we assume on some level we'll be met with judgment, scorn, derision, mockery, or silence. And it is unfortunate that there are parts and corners of this world, be it digital and virtual or real, where those are the unfortunate receipts for our transmissions. We say we're afraid of a thing, somebody might not answer. There need to be more people who do respond, who do care, who do connect, who do want to help. Not connect and help and, you know, hey, for I'll totally help you, but first give me your credit card for 12 easy payments of $495 a month. No, 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 no. Or not even the one-time payment of $16.99. There need to be people who genuinely care. You need not have your fear met with silence or anger or mockery. You need not quit out of fear because fear can be overcome. Fear can, you know, a lack of education can be repaired. A lack of skill can be trained. Uh, a fear of rejection can be worked through. Don't quit. The worst decision an unpublished author who says being published or finishing a book or having stories or being an author or anything like that is important. The worst thing you can do is walk away because you're just unsure of what the next steps are or because you feel you're not good enough to do them. At least try. The reason why this chat will never charge for seats is because I want the door to be open for every single person on the whole fucking planet, if they want to come in here and ask a question, because I don't think anybody should be alone. I don't think any writer writing whatever the hell you're writing, however far along you are, however new you are, however experienced you are, I don't think anybody wants to feel disconnected from the rest of everybody else. I don't think you out there writing your book should feel somehow alone or ignored just because that's what somebody else went through. That's some bullshit. Why not get some help? The most courageous thing, the best decision you can make, let's, let's flip it around. The best decision you can make is asking for help. Now, yes, there's that risk you'll get rejected. I know, I hear you. But at the same time, what if you're not? What if you ask for help here, now, right now? And I go, okay, here's how to do a thing. Like, people in chat, I need you to understand that if you actually took five seconds and wrote a sentence like, hey, John, could you fix my plot? I will talk into this microphone and fix your plot. 
like you have tremendous, not even opportunity, because that sounds egoic. You have tremendous ability to get the tools you need delivered to you in the easiest pop culture reference way possible. I will bend over backwards to accommodate you here. I want to help you succeed. So the worst thing you can do is walk away. The best thing you can do is ask for help. Great question. Love it so much. Why don't we go to the next one? Question number nine. What's the best way to approach writing a collection of short stories that all share the same world? This is a good question. This comes up a lot. Okay. If the world is the thing stitching all the stories together, and it doesn't matter in this case how many stories there are. Could be two, could be five, could be 30, could be 90. Doesn't matter. If the world is the thing stitching it apart, stitching them all together, then it is important that the world be consistent. That does not mean the world always only needs to be the same five things, unless that's important to the story. Like if all your stories, however many there are, take place in the same location, they're all different stories of patrons at a restaurant. Fine, great. But if you're trying to do more than that, and the world is bigger than just one location then the rules of the world, how the world works, how the world treats things, how the world defines its power dynamics, how the world defines its classes, how the world defines its wealth, its haves, its have-nots, its rules, its structures, its orders, its fears, its whatevers, its X's, its Y's, its Z's, those have to be consistent. They don't always have to come up in every single story. Some do because, you know, your world probably shares consistent gravity or physics or air or sky or ground or something like that. But there's going to be some things that come into one story and come out of the other. Your goal should be so that by the time I'm done reading this collection of stories, however many there are, I can take pieces from each and go, this is the world of the stories. You don't count, unlike a single novel where there's just one story telling me everything I need to know about the world. You're using a collection of stories, however big, however small, whatever, to give me enough pieces so that by the time I'm done, I've been informed about the world. So write your story one at a time as though it's the only story and make sure that the world elements or the impression the world gives or both carry over from story to story. That's how you write it whether you're writing one thing, five things, however many things. If your world is a grim, dark world of necromancy and polka, make sure that the world of necromancy and polka is necropolka-tastic as much as possible in different ways so that you're not repeating the same thing over and over and over again. Great question. Love that question. Love that question so much. Next question. Oh, my God. Are there any questions from anybody? And I see more people came in, so hello. It's good to see you. Are there any more questions from anybody here in chat? As I chug more tea. I should warn you that if you're here right now, there are some really strong questions at the end. And if this is the first time you're checking this out, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Please don't. Uh, I should do the usual streamy stuff, right? Uh, if you're on YouTube and checking this out, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Um, 
it really helps the channel, which is code for it makes the numbers go up. So it's more likely that um, I will be able to buy food. And if you're watching this on Twitch, following is free. But if you're really digging this content, feel free to subscribe. It's worth it. I will always do my best to make it worth it. Troy asks a question. Is there an appropriate time or circumstance to quit writing? Yes, there are a few. Great question, Troy. Uh, circumstance number one, you die or you are in the presence or in the course of dying where it is inconvenient for you to continue writing. That's going to be case number one. I'm trying to make light of it because it's pretty heavy. But when you, be, when you reach a point where you are incapable of doing the task of writing, not necessarily always typing, but you can't even dictate and you can't even have an amenusis or um, anything like that. When writing becomes impossible, that is an okay circumstance to give up. It's disappointing. I'm not saying it's not disappointing, but it makes sense that if you can't do it, don't keep trying. However, that's an extreme circumstance. That is that is a, a very definitive mortality kind of answer, and that's not really what I think you're asking. There's a difference between quitting short-term and quitting forever. If you're frustrated, if you are grieving rejection, if you are grieving anything, mourning the loss of a co-author, feeling... Uh, dejected and stressed from work and it's hard to kind of detach from the burnout or your job's just been like super busy and it's really hard to make time to write or you've just got a kid on the way or you're trying to make ends meet and your writing time for the moment might be better served as work time. Those are totally valid, unfortunate, shitty, capitalism sucks reasons to give up writing in the short term. Really and truly, it's okay. But if we're talking long-term, give up and never come back, that answer has to be specific, not for me, but for you, because you're saying you're not you specifically, Troy, but you're saying that a person's just never going to do it again. So to them, whatever their reason or time feels appropriate to them. Do I have to agree with it? No, but they're not looking for me to agree. I'm not the permission giver of when someone taps out. If you want to walk, okay, I will, I will miss you. You know, I will, I will ask if there's anything I can do to help you because I, I, I don't want to see you give up your story. I don't want to see you lose your voice. I don't want to see your art extinguished from the world. But at the time, if you're really feeling like there's no recourse, there's no possible salvation, there's no possible tool to help you, there's nothing that can be done. And the only thing you can do, for whatever reason, and you have not just subjective opinion caught up in the moment, but you have actual evidence, tangible, tactile, provable things where you can validate and say, yes, I should not be writing. Yeah, then go ahead and quit. But if you're saying, ah, I'm frustrated, I'm not getting where I want to get, I don't know how to get there, it sucks, there's too much rejection, this isn't working, it's not working the way I thought, it's hard, it takes time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those, those are nice, and that's true, but you can do something about any of that stuff. I, John's Opinion Corner, I think that one of the, if there's something you can do and you are willing to do it, 
in order to continue doing whatever you're doing or get better at doing whatever you're doing, then you should do that. But if you're really looking for reasons to quit and you're looking for things to validate your negative experience, okay, see you later. I, I really think that. I think a lot of people who are so willing to quit, no matter what, you could hand them the most blueprinty blueprint that ever blueprinted and they'd still quit. That's not because they're bad people. It's just because they were never really interested in, in going this way and doing this thing. They only liked some single dimension of it. And when they found out that there, were, there was more to it, they didn't stick around. And that's sad. That's unfortunate. That's a function of poor information, not, not, uh, they're being poorly informed that they weren't told in advance and made clear to them that, Hey, I see you hooking up with this one facet, but please know that there's multiple facets. That's, that's, that's a failing on the community's job in that case. But by and large, I tend to want to think about people who quit writing on an individual case by case basis. It's hard to make generalizations. Because everybody's different and everybody's reasons for both doing it or not doing it are different. It's a great question. Um, I will be thinking about it for sure. If I come up with a better answer, I'll let you know, Troy. Great question. Are there any others? That is a really good question. Wow. I do want to, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, because my wheels are spinning. It, no, you didn't bring me down. You didn't bring me down. You, you, you just got me introspective. That's not the same thing. Um, you did not bring me down, Troy. Don't, don't worry about it. You, you got me thinking, and then thinking is okay. If you're, not you, Troy, but a writer is out there listening to this, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not really happy about it. I'm not really happy with writing. Then... Allow me to be first shameless about a thing and then allow me to give you some good advice. First of all, if you're out there listening to this and you're on the fence about whether or not you should continue, please, please go over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. Book a free appointment. Have a conversation with me. And just let's, let's just talk. Let's just talk it through, okay? I'd be super happy to do that. Doesn't cost you a thing. Just takes a couple minutes. I'd be happy to talk. Be my pleasure. Okay. But let me give you a piece of advice. And I'm somebody. I'll tell you this. And if you're a longtime chat person, or you've been with me in loads of different spaces, you've probably heard some of this before. But some of you are new, and you've maybe not known this. I'm somebody who is constantly paralyzed with fear. Great oceans and mountains of fear. I could be doing this, but I'm afraid because maybe somebody won't like it. I could be doing that. I'm, you know, I notoriously undercharge. Like, did you know I undercharge by like a whole decimal place on everything? You know, it, it, it shouldn't be, you know, 69 bucks for a chapter. It should be easily twice that. It should be, you know, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. I sell a PDF at payhip.com for nine, is it nine bucks or seven bucks? And it should be like 39. I don't have any big courses. I don't charge big giant things because I'm afraid to. I'm afraid that my advice 
although sincere, is less functional, less useful, less good than somebody who has, you know, a Sony fancy camera and a big studio light and runs up a credit card debt because I don't have any credit cards. And, you know, they have all this big stuff and they have this huge newsletter following and this huge Twitter account and they're constantly, you know, white lady dancing to hip hop music and they're they're throwing these big celebrity events and they're really pushing everything on socials and they use words like crush it and 10x their productivity. I don't do any of that because I'm scared. I'm afraid of what would happen. I'm afraid fundamentally that if I were to do that, that the people who have supported me this far would disappear. I'd price them out. And I would be unable to find new people. And the tenuous hold I have on things like my home and my health would slip away. And I've convinced myself of this, dug in deep, locked it in my head. And it is terrifying in that way that when you get scared, it feels like someone is massaging your finger, you're massaging your stomach at very high speed, that sort of nervous, quailing feeling. I'm an expert in this field. I have more experience than my three biggest competitors combined. I will tell you with no ego, well, a little bit of ego, but no mistake. If I'm, if I'm having a good day and I'm talking into this mic, there's not a soul on this planet who can touch me in this field. I've been doing this half my life. I know what I'm doing. Why would I be so scared? Why would I spend so much time thinking about quitting, thinking about what it means to quit? Because I've, I've been there. I've been there. I've been somebody who's like, oh, look what that other person's doing. Wow, they're they're. They're making that much money a month, a week, a weekend, a Facebook training. I made air quotes. Wow. What did I do this week? Oh, I made 10 bucks. Sweet. They made how many thousands? Hundreds? Tens? Wow. Okay. Oh, they just got a brand deal? What did I do? Uh, I bought gum. I stole a bagel. Ooh. I understand fear. I get it. I understand wanting to quit. I get it, but why don't I? I got all these things arrayed against me. I got all this fear. I got all these doubts. I got all these problems. I could quit. I could go get a, a job job. I could go somewhere where I, I don't know, wear a name badge and tuck my shirt in and answer to some boss. I could do it. Don't laugh. I could do it. Not for very long. You know, I'm still me, but I could do it, right? Why don't I? Because... I still have something to contribute. I still want to do this more than I don't want to do this. And I'm willing, over time, to get better at what I do. To make new graphics, to talk more into this mic, to put out more stuff. Yeah, I don't know the first goddamn thing about marketing. I know the theory. I'm great for marketing a book that isn't mine. But when it comes to me, I got to punch that fear in the face. It's hard. It's scary. Now, why do I say this as I watch my follower viewer count plummet as it just did? Why? Because I don't think the other people will. I don't ever think you're going to get the, the, the business coaches and the business super writing gurus and the fancy people with the $5,000, $3,000, $10,000 courses. I don't think they're going to tell you a sincere story about like, hey, I think about quitting every day. I think they're going to put on a, a face. I think they're going to put on a facade. I think they're going to sell you the same six 
tired, dull, repeated information nuggets over and over and over again. And they're not interested in connecting with you. They're interested in connecting with your bank account. I want you to succeed. I want you to want you to succeed to the same degree. So that's why I don't quit. I'm hoping, praying that some of that gets through to somebody out there listening to this and that they know they're not alone because maybe I'm just telling myself I'm not alone too. That's why you don't quit. That's why you don't walk away because, man, everybody's got something to contribute. And if given the right tools, they can contribute maybe more than once and it all makes a difference. So why not contribute? That's why you don't quit, Troy. That's my better answer to your question. Are there any others? I'd get there in the I, I know I would get there in the end. It just took me a minute. By the way, I try not to worry about the viewer count too much, although lately it's been a real thing for me. But we're working on it. We're developing. We're nearly to double digits on the regular. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. I, I really appreciate it. Don't forget to like and subscribe. It really helps the channel. I apparently don't say that enough for the algorithm's taste. Shall we move on? Oh, I got to click the right button. There we go. Question 10. Is it wrong to emulate successful authors? No-ish would be my answer. No, kinda. First of all, it depends on what we're saying success is and what we're saying emulation is. Because I don't know if you know this, there are some authors who are shitty people. They're bigoted. They're transphobic. They're Nazis. They're cruel. They're homophobes. They're violent. They perpetuate an agenda that is not congruent with, you know, empathy or compassion or care or love or human rights. You know, there's just some shitty people out there and they're authors and they're successful because the world has not yet managed a way to get everybody in touch with their empathy. Nor have we had the revolution yet, brothers and sisters. So some authors are not worth emulating. Yes, their successes might make them seem like, oh my God, that's what I want. Give me that person's money. Sure, I get that. But at the same time, that person is a terrible person. And you can't emulate their money without emulating their behavior. So what? how are you defining this success? Find the thing that you like. And if it's just the money, well, we're going to have a conversation about what authors get paid and how some of the authors that we consider successful now are successful now because they were successful before. And now their wealth and privilege and sometimes their whiteness protects them and insulates them from real problems. So they're still successful, but on the back of something else. If you're talking about more than their income, and you're talking about more than their sales or more than their newsletter size or more than their Twitter followers or something. 
it is not wrong to emulate those traits that got them to that position without their ideology. Like the successful authors who you say, I want to do what they do in terms of like, they constantly communicate with their audience or they regularly put out a book or they, I don't know, they have cool cover designs those qualities, those single things that contribute to their success but are not built out of their ideology. You can be a Nazi and have any number of qualities to your book covers because you didn't make the book cover. Somebody made a book cover for a Nazi. So if you just like their book covers, go talk to their cover person. Find out who it is. It's not that hard. Go ask the media department or their publisher. So it's not necessarily wrong to emulate a successful author, but it is very important. It is crucial and critical to figure out how you're defining that success and what of that author's practice rather than their personality or their thinking or their ideology that you're trying to emulate. Because if you're just going to be like them, just as a broad picture, you will not find their success coming your way because their success is theirs for good or for ill. But if you're looking to emulate their practice, they write consistently. They write even on those days where they don't want to write. They plan out a story and they outline a certain way. They organize this. They do that. Those are the qualities and the, the actions to emulate. And while it might be difficult to divorce those actions from the rest of the nonsense that is their bullshit, those are the things to emulate. But I would, honestly, I would love to see more people make those distinctions when they talk about, I want to be like this person and be like that person. Uh, if I may use a sports analogy for a hot minute. For a very long time, there was a campaign, and I don't even know if it's still going on, but there was a very long campaign of, I want to be like Mike. I think there's even a movie about that where you can be like Michael Jordan. And it's almost always framed in the context of like playing like Mike, being like Mike, successful, able to dunk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Michael Jordan's not a great person. He's arrogant, he's narcissistic, he's vain, he's a gambler. And I don't mean like gambling in terms of addiction, although that is a thing, but he's he's a gambler in terms of he's willing to risk loads of other people's things in order for his own benefit. He's There's an inherent level of selfishness there. And of course, he's insulated by money, wealth, and privilege. And that allows him to maintain some rather unpleasant, uh, unpleasant opinions. And yes, I mean, punching Steve Kerr like Mike, I, I guess. I mean, I'm not a big Steve Kerr guy. Um, I have heard and seen the memes that Steve Kerr has a punchable face, and I have not yet done enough homework to disagree with that yet. But, um, yeah, there's always this big push to be like Michael Jordan, but understand that in trying to be like Mike, you don't have to pick up all the things like Mike. You don't have to treat Scottie Pippen like shit in order to do it. You don't have to yell at Phil Jackson all the time. You can practice like him. You can mirror his dribble. You can do loads of things. But be careful what you emulate. And more, most importantly, keep in mind why you're emulating them. It's a good deep question. I still don't know about punching Steve Kerr. Like... It seems like a shitty thing to do. I don't know Steve Kerr as a person. I've heard him on commentary and 
punching him is a little harsh, but certainly ignoring him seems reasonable. Um, yeah, but when it comes to emulating successful authors, please be discriminating in the practices you are emulating. And be careful how you define success because sometimes it is not necessarily a thing the author set out to do. It is a byproduct of the machinery around them. Like, why is this person making all this money? Well, because there's a huge giant corporation behind them. I would like Steve Kerr if I researched him. I'm sure if I sat down, you know what I'm going to end up doing later? I was going to have some candy and drink more tea. I will Wikipedia Steve Kerr. It's a really good point. Um, but just be careful and conscientious about what what portions of what authors you are emulating and for what reason. And remember that even if you were to emulate them on a one-to-one -one exact basis, they got up at five, so you get up at five. They write 2,000 words a day, you write 2,000 words a day. It does not mean that their success will be yours. Even, even if you say, well, at two years in, they were doing this, I want that level of success. There's no guarantee that it's prorated like that. Your success is yours. Their success is theirs. Emulation will only take you so far. At some point, you need to take a deep breath and pursue your own path, modeled partially on the habits of others, but also in ways where you define your own practices. Yes, even if you're starting out, even if you're new. Great question. On we go to the next. Question 11. How would I give a protagonist two character arcs within one plot? You need the background for this question in order to understand it. So I was talking to a person, and they were describing how they have, I'm going to make numbers up, they have, let's say, a 100-page story. In the first 50 pages, they have a character arc for their main character. And then starting on page 51, all the way to 100, they have a second character arc for their character. And over the course of the whole hundred pages, there's one plot. And they're asking me why I'm talking to them in the first place is if it, if it makes sense, if that's okay. Now, here's where things get wrinkly. In the abstract, without looking at their specific words, it sounds okay. It is uncommon to put two arcs next to each other without either overlapping them in some way or intertwining them or, st or most commonly stretching each over the course of the whole book. But it, in the abstract, conceptually is possible if one arc doesn't just end and the other one starts, but if the second one that starts is related to the ending of the first one. Like, let me think of just a, a real bad, obvious example. I've learned how to do a thing in the first arc, and now I am learning why I should be careful doing a thing in the second arc. As long as there's a relationship between those two arcs, yeah, sticking them one next to, the each, next to each other makes sense. Totally. Sure. Why not? But if we're talking about, here's 100 pages. I have a character arc that stretches across the whole story and a second character arc that stretches across the whole story. Then we're running into a different situation because the problem we're going to run into is each of these arcs, although they involve the same protagonist, possibly compete with one another for reader attention because the reader is going to want to try and prioritize this stuff and keep it straight, organize it, figure out what's going on, figure out what's important and why we're doing it. Now, sometimes this problem gets solved by having one of the character arcs 
matter more to the plot than the other character arc. One character arc is about who they are as a person, and the other one is kind of like with them as a person, but it's also a little plot-paced. That's okay. It's hard to do. I got I to gotta point out, this is difficult to do. Certainly difficult to do very well, which is why generally it's frowned upon. But it is possible to do it. In order to do it, if you're going to put the two arcs side by side, entangle them a little, overlap them a little. Have one feed into the other or relate to the other. If we've got two and we're stretching them across the entirety of the story, please understand that one of them is going to end up with the short end of the stick when it comes to reader attention. Know that going into it. Plan for that. That second arc is whatever it might be. It's not going to be able to carry as much weight and take up as much space as the other one because the reader's already got enough plates spinning. Is that a great answer? No, because John's opinion corner, I think two character arcs is doing your character a disservice. How many transformations and how much growth do you want your character to do in one plot? If your character is doing all this transforming in each distinct way, because it's, it's, Every arc is different from each other. So arc number one and arc number two are, although happening to the same person, two very different things. It's very hard to have one set of events transform a character in three ways. They change because of the plot. They change because of character arc number one, and they change because of character arc number two, and have each of these three ways be different from the other ways. That's a lot. And those changes better be substantial. One of those changes better not be, oh my God, they changed their hair color. That's not an arc. That's one of those lateral changes we talked about. So if you're going to do it, it's hard. I would advise against it. One arc and one plot is plenty. Have more plots. You don't always need an arc to match the number of plots. I have two arcs. I need two plots. Or vice, excuse me, vice versa. I have two plots. I need two arcs. No, it's not a one-to-one relationship. One character arc should be enough. Pick one. Turn the other into a plot point. Turn the other, tangle the two together better. It's going to help you in the long term more. But yeah, if you want to do the two, give them a reason to connect to one another. It'll make it easier. On we go to the next. Question 12. We are definitely drinking tea for question 12. What can I do to have more faith that people will want to read my work? Yeah, I I need more tea for this because this is going to get deep like one of those heavy-duty questions. Here we go. Here's my question to you, and I know it's not great practice to answer a question with a question. But why are you writing? I'm not saying that in an effort to dissuade you from writing. I'm asking you, why are you writing? Because there has to be, at the core of that answer, to some degree, be it 1% or 10% or all of it, there has to be some faith that you have a reason to produce the work in the first place. Not not get read. We're going to handle the readers in a minute. We're going to talk about you, the writer, first, okay? Why are you writing what you're writing? Now, maybe your answer is capitalistic and commercial. I want to sell a book. 
Maybe your answer is validation based. I want to feel legit like a real writer. Maybe your answer is, you know, in the sixth grade, my English teacher was a real pain in my ass and I want to stick it to her by writing a book out of spite. You know, maybe it's, I just want to try and do and see if I could do this thing. Maybe it's a, I made a deathbed promise to my great grandma and now it's time for the prophecy to come true. I don't know. But at some point in some way, there has to be a reason why you're doing the thing you're doing. And that reason, especially when you're trying to make this an, what's called an outbound thing, like you're going to make a book for other people to read, hopefully purchase and read because capitalism, but you're, you're planning this not just to write it and like put it in a box and leave it alone. You're doing this with the intention of giving it to others. If that's any part of your goal, to any degree, no matter how we publish it or whatever. But if your goal is to get this thing out so other people can consume it, there is at some level an assumption that after some amount of time with some amount of work in some amount of ways, somebody's going to want to read it. It has to be baked in at some level. Because if you're doing all this work, and it's different than being unsure if people will like it, but the assumption that somebody out there, I mean, the world's full of like 8 billion people. So if we take you out of the equation, it's 7,999,999,999 people, not counting you. Maybe we take off one or two more people for your family members because they're biased. Like that's, that's still 7.9 billion people. Statistically, mathematically, somebody out there has to like your work. You've got to know that going in because otherwise, why are you doing as much as you're doing to the degree you're doing it? If, because if the question was just, how do I get more faith in myself? I would tell you, well, here's my therapist's name and number. You should book an appointment because that's the question I've been working on for years with him. But if the question here is, how do I have more faith that people will want to read my work? We have to go look at your work. I see your question about chapter organization. We're going to get there in a hot second. You have to know, I'm coming back to question 12. You have to know that you've done the best job possible that you could do. Now, maybe it took you time. Maybe it took you six weeks. Maybe it took you a year. Maybe it took you two years. Maybe it took you five years. Maybe it took you 20. Who knows? There is no correct or right amount of time. Now, part of that's influenced by things like how often did you write in the first place? And part of that is is impacted by, well, what are you writing and is it tough to sell? And, and did you, you know, is, it, is there just a lot going on? But you have to know somewhere in you that you're doing your best and you have up to this point done your best and that you will, going forward in the future, continue to do your best. Now, that bestness, I'm making air quotes, will change. You'll get more education. You'll gain some skills. You'll figure some stuff out. You'll get better as you go because you'll practice thing more. No matter, just like any other skill, the more you practice, the better you'll get because you'll develop muscle memory and strength and skill. Great. As long as you are always doing your best and you are confident to some degree that statistically out of 7.9 billion people, somebody somewhere is going to be interested in what you're producing. That's enough. 
at least to start. It is okay while you're writing to like what you're writing. It's okay when you're finished to like what you have written. It is okay to struggle in revising your stuff down to get it into a publishable format or a publishable size or shape or whatever. It's okay to struggle with that stuff. You know you did your best. Even if you've got to cut some darlings out of your book, even if you've got to hack this thing down, even if you've got to rewrite a thing, did you do your best? From that, from that honest integrity, from that purposefulness, from that intention, somebody somewhere will vibe with it. And you you just have to count on that. I know in this world, especially in social media, it can be really almost stupid and laughable to feel like somebody out there is going to vibe with you because social media is designed to disconnect us, disassociate us, scatter us, put up walls, all while telling us it's bringing us together. But people out there will like your work if you've done your best and you talk about it in a way that seems relatable to them. Remember, a reader isn't just looking for cool shit on page one. A reader is looking for an experience that affects them, that stirs emotion, that develops ideas, that is a presentation that they can vibe with. Ah, this is a book about a, an underdog hockey team, and they it's, it's you know, people who struggle and overcome obstacles. I'm a person who struggles and overcomes obstacles. Maybe I'll check this book out. Find those points and bridges of relationship between you and your work and the reader. And people will want to read it. To steal a line from a movie that makes me cry about playing catch with your dad, if you build it, people will show the fuck up to your cornfield. You just have to build it. And over time, by continuing to do your best, people out there will find it, provided you tell them. If you don't tell them, how are they going to know? How are they going to know? in doing your best, in talking about it, your faith in a want for a readership or growing a community will happen. It'll take time. And it's a risk. There's a chance that you'll say, hey, come check my shit out. And no one will. That's a risk. But if you keep doing it, you keep doing it in more and more places, in different ways, so you're not just saying the same thing to the same people who have heard it a million times, people will come. They'll show up. Keep trying. Don't quit. Let's answer this question in chat, and then we'll go on to 13. What are my thoughts on rearranged chapter organization or when rearranged chapter organizations make certain aspects of a scene redundant? What are some ways to rescue a scene that has diminished in value? Ooh. Okay, there you go. Yes, sometimes shuffling chapters around will make some parts of scenes redundant or utterly unnecessary. In those cases, see if you can cut those parts of the scene. If, you know, your scene ends on a cliffhanger and when you shuffle the chapters around, your cliffhanger doesn't need to be there anymore, rewrite the end of your scene. It's a little obvious to say that, but I think that's a good point to start from. If you're going to juggle things around and it changes the way scenes connect to one another, make sure you rebuild and repair those connections. That's one way to rescue a scene that's no longer clicking or working the way it was before. Make sure it connects from what's before it and make sure it connects to what's ahead of it. 
that'll give it some value. However, if even after doing that, the scene doesn't necessarily accomplish anything new or help develop something pre-existing, you've got to question why the scene is there in the first place at all. Because if you're going to reorder, let's say you're going to shuffle your chapters around, it is possible that in building a better format for your story, some of these scenes, even maybe even some of these chapters become unnecessary. Because, oh, well, if I move this chapter here and I put that chapter there, the point I'm trying to make is clear and I don't need this other chapter where I, I say it a second time. Then just cut it. If you're looking specifically to try and rescue a scene... Figure out what it is that has diminished. Why Why isn't this working? Why, why is this now no longer as essential as it was? And what can I add to it? Not so much to rebuild this specific essential thing. Like it's no longer important. I talk about point A. Rather than trying to make A a big deal again, can we find a way to connect it to B or C or Q or M or whatever else that is now in this new version currently important? Some redundancy is inevitable, and some redundancy is even in some cases permissible. But when it becomes a habit, when more and more things just seem to be extra, do not be afraid to cut and rebuild, or just cut and collapse. It's hard to know objectively. Sometimes it's, it's not that clear. Uh, part of it's contextual. Part of it depends on what it is you're talking about. But overall, if a scene is really gone down in value and function, like there's just, it's harder and harder to justify that scene being there other than, well, John, I like this scene. If that's the only reason the scene's staying in the book, um, my honest advice to you is to take that scene out, paste it into a separate file, print it out, and then have it on hand so that nobody can fuck with it ever again. And then cut it out of the manuscript. Because you still have a copy. You can still appreciate it. It's over there. But it doesn't fit in your book anymore. The goal isn't to preserve as much as possible, as broken as it might be. Your goal is to produce the best transmission of the idea from your head to the page. Not all your ideas are going to make that transmission. Not all ideas, like turtles at the beach and that egg-laying science thing they show you in school, not all the turtles make it into the ocean. Not all your scenes are going to survive revision. That is a cruel, cruel part of production. But it's a true part of production. If you find yourself trying to rescue scene after scene and trying to make the redundant valuable again, don't go out of your way to try and make everything valuable because everything's valuable, then why were you rearranging it in the first place? My gut instinct regarding your question is to tell you that sometimes it's okay to cut. Good question. Really good question. Let's go on to question 13. Question 13. What's worse? People who take up space in writing communities and never contribute or the people who dominate the space? When I tell you I've struggled with this question, please believe me. Because one of the great peeves of my life, one of the great things that really bugs the living shit out of me, is to come into a community, whether I'm there to answer questions or hang out or, or assist in something or teach something or just be present in the community, and see all these members 
a huge list, whether it's Discord or Facebook or anything else, a huge list of people. And like three people are doing all the talking all the time. Bugs the hell out of me. Because I believe these communal spaces and these communities should be active. They should be engaging. They should be functional. Because why else are you there? Why download the software? Why sign up for an account? Why connect with this if you're not going to use it? I know with Discord, it's super easy to join like a, ba- a ton of Discords just in case. Just one day. I know. I do it too. And yes, every once in a while, once in a blue moon, there is a value to it because somebody says a thing and you're like, ah, thanks. But by and large, why are you in these spaces if you're not making use of them? Why, why, why do that to yourself? There's better uses of your time if you're not going to be part of a thing. Is it just because you want to be seen? What is it about your presence here that is helping you? But at the same time, if we flip this around, those four or five people, those three people, those ten people who do all the talking and who never seem to let somebody else get a word in edgewise, why are they hogging up all the space? Is it attention-seeking? Is it recognition? Do they just want to feel important? Do they just like talking and no one's ever really given them space before? So now the minute they have a space, they're going to fill it up like a hot air balloon. Is it because they have boundary issues? Is it because they, they, nobody's ever stopped them before? It can be hard to know how to answer this. I think for me, what I've found in my experience, both as somebody who is a part of communities, who has maintained a community, who was present at communities, growth and destructions. I think it is worse to have people who take up space and never contribute only because once you get somebody talking, once you give somebody that access, that permission, that encouragement, all of a sudden now there are more people and there's more space being taken up by a diversity of people. And it's not just a matter of like, the same three or four people complaining about the same three things every day, every day, over and over and over again. Now there's a wealth of things, good, bad, in the middle, in action, in progress, developing everything. It's more full and broad and colorful and active. So I'm okay with people dominating space because the more people who come in, the, the harder everybody has to work to get their space. And that can lead to conversation, cooperation, collaboration, it can learn, lead to education and evaluation. It can be beneficial for more people to step up and have voices and be active. The space taker uppers, I still don't have a good answer for. I just, I don't know what they wait for. Because I've asked. I've asked, hey, you know, there's 65 people here. What's up? What can I do to help you? Why are only three of you saying anything? It's, it's impossible for some of these people. Like you, you can't, you're not going to appear stupid for saying like, hey, help me do this thing because literally I'm asking what I can do to help. So what's stopping you? And if you're here but taking up space, why? What are you waiting for? I don't get it. I, I, I really want to. I really, really want to. But I, I just don't understand because it, it takes... It's hard to go first. It's hard to step out and be like, okay, I'm going to try and contribute now. It'd be scary as hell. I get it. I know. 
As somebody who's fearful all the time, I get it. But at the same time, you're supposed to be here for a purpose, right? Is it really helping you if you're not doing that purpose? I think about this one a lot. I wish I had a better answer. I will think about it some more. There will probably be a podcast about this later in the week or maybe next week diving into this more deeply because I'm sure I'll have more thoughts about it. Are there any other questions? Because that's it. That's been 13. Do we have any other questions? We went a little long tonight. Any other questions, issues, etc. from anybody about anything? Else we will go to the outro. Let's outro. Let's get out of here before my voice totally goes. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. I really, really appreciate it. This one was this one was a lot. This one was good. I was very happy about it. Thank you so much for being here. It really means the world. Thank you for all your questions. Thanks for teaching me about Steve Kerr. I will go look him up. Thanks for letting me talk about fear. Thanks for being honest with me. Thanks for coming on this journey. I really appreciate it. Um, the next time I'm here, by the way, uh, I'm looking to do something... Maybe on the 20th of February. For more details, uh, the best thing you can do is sign up for the newsletter. For, to get the newsletter, by the way, it's johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com. Uh, I'll make a more formal announcement for that in the newsletter. It will be out on Monday the 20th. Other than that, the next time I'll be right here in your ears doing this very same thing is next Wednesday, the 22nd of February, the last, fe- last Wednesday of the month. Uh, right here at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch and YouTube, streaming for you more questions and more answers and more things. It's my pleasure to be here. All power to all people. Thanks for everything you do. Please take care of yourselves. Please know that I love you. You are absolutely worth it. I would hate to see you quit. I want to see you succeed. Please let me know if there's anything I can do anytime. If you liked this, if this was good, if you enjoyed this and you want to see more like it, and you want to support this and keep this going, Jump over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better for two bucks a month, $2 a month. I guarantee you'll find something that'll really help. All right. That's it, everybody. Have a wonderful night. I'll talk to you soon. See ya.